everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? I'm doing okay. Lisa and I have been engaging in what has become a bit of a seasonal tradition for us, where we watch a whole bunch of terrible Christmas movies, and that's been fun. But I am sorry to report that the celebrated Christmas Prince franchise has really lost its way. So, as I've discussed on the show, the best part of the first Christmas Prince movie is, by far, the fact that the Christmas Prince lady's boss talks like a newspaper lady from a 1930s screwball comedy. It's terrific that she talks like this all the time. You hear me, Christmas Prince? I want that story now! Now, in the sequel, To Christmas, To Prince, Christmas Prince Lady doesn't work for the newspaper anymore, so we don't get that character, which was a huge letdown. I think they tried to make up for it by having an increased role for Christmas Prince Lady's dad, who talks like a 1940s stereotype of a New York cab driver, which was okay. But the best part about that character was the fact that he owned what was clearly an upscale coffee shop that he continually referred to as a diner. And since the entirety of that movie took place in Aldovia, we didn't get to see him in his natural element. Now, in this most recent entry into the franchise, Christmas Prince 3, Bub the Chud, the story centers around Christmas Prince Lady having a baby. Once again, the whole story takes place in the mythical kingdom of Aldovia. There's some nonsense about a treaty or something. And it's fine, but Christmas Prince Lady's dad is barely in the movie until the very end. Which means that there were virtually no inexplicably old-timey New York stereotypical accents in this movie, which was a huge problem. And makes me worry about the future of this franchise, because now it is facing two pretty significant problems. One, the unfortunate dearth of ridiculous, over-the-top, old-timey New York stereotypical accents. And B... They have now completed the schoolyard rhyme triptych, and where do they go from here? I mean, first movie had love, second movie had marriage, third movie has a baby in a baby carriage. So, I mean, if they want to keep with, like, the schoolyard rhyme thing, I guess the fourth movie could center around Popeye the sailor man who lives in a garbage can, but I think you're going to run into some licensing problems there. Fortunately... I have a solution to both of the problems this movie franchise is facing. For the fourth movie, Christmas Prince, Turtles in Time, the Christmas Prince baby is possessed by the benign ghost of Prohibition-era New York writer Damon Runyon, whose short stories inspired the musical Guys and Dolls. This solves so many problems. For a fun New York accent... Hard to beat the uh, Runyon-esque dialogue of a Guys and Dolls character, which is what this baby would sound like. Pretty good. B. Damon Runyon was a newspaper writer, so we get to bring back Christmas Prince's boss. She could be like, Baby Damon Runyon, I've had it up to here with your folksy descriptions of Prohibition-era gangsters. I need the inside scoop on the latest scandals in Aldovia. And don't give me that I'm a baby girl who just made boom boom in my diety's excuse. I'm trying to sell papers. 
And thirdly, it solves the problem of what to do with the plot for the movie, because in addition to being a newspaper writer and a short story writer, Damon Runyon was also the creator of the roller derby. So, obviously, the plot to Christmas Prince Still Christmasin is the institution of the first roller derby in Aldovia. And because in the most recent film, there was some head nodding to the Christmas Prince lady being a little bit of a feminist and trying to do away with some of the more overt institutionalized sexism in Aldovia, in this next movie, she and her daughter, who is again possessed by the ghost of Damon Runyon, can sign up for the roller derby using the names Bruzen B. Anthony and Sandra Day O'Clobber. So, in summation, much as I did in two non-consecutive elementary school plays, I have again saved Christmas. You're welcome. Now, without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Cecilia Hudson. For breakfast, the Avengers eat a bowl of grits, and the Defenders like to eat eggs benedict. Donna, Vic, and Gar drink free sodas with Dick, but all the listeners get is Hub's great synopsis. Synopsis. Thanks, Cecilia. New Teen Titans, Volume 2, Number 9, June 1985. Crystal Nightmare. Written by Marf Wolfman, drawn by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, inked by Romeo Tangal, lettered by John Costanza, colored by Adrian Roy, and edited, such as it is, by Marv Wolfman. Teen Titan Roll Call. Wonder Girl, Starfire, Lilith, Beast Boy, Cyborg, Nightwing, Jericho, and introducing Cole. Previously in New Teen Titans. In one of their early adventures, our titular teenagers ran afoul of the not-so-new, not-so-teen Titans of ancient Greek mythology. Hyperion, the Titan of the Sun, who I call Fuckface on account of he's a total fuckface, had escaped from his imprisonment in Tartarus, the ancient Greek version of hell. Fuckface's wife-slash-sister Thea had taken a powder, so Fuckface decided to kidnap Wonder Girl, use his bullshit powers to hypnotize her into falling in love with him, and make her help him free the rest of his OG Titan siblings from ancient Greek hell so that they could wage war on the gods of Olympus. What a fuckface! The new Teen Titans thought that seemed like a shitty plan, so they teamed up with the gods of Olympus to fight the newly unbound Old Greek Titans. A deific Donnybrook ensued, and when the dust settled, the OG Titans agreed to move back to Tartarus, start a commune, and try to spruce the place up a little. In more recent events, our heroes met an amnesiac alien angel who Cory and I named Zack Wingman. Zack formed a deep and instant emotional bond with temperamentally telepathic occasional teen titan Lilith. Unfortunately, as a side effect of their intense first encounter, Lilith caught on fire and passed out. The rest of the gang decided that Zack was a bad influence and chased him around the city until he left to go live in a treehouse in Pendleton, Oregon. When Lilith recovered, she was pretty peeved at her purported pals for their treatment of Zack, and explained that catching on fire was something that just happened to her every once in a while, and was no big deal. The intermittently intuitive Auburn Trest ingenue went on to exposit that she was an orphan, and had been searching for her birth parents her whole life. Good to know. Eventually, Zack Wingman returned from Oregon to reunite with his sporadically psychic love interest. 
Soon after Zack's arrival, another unexpected visitor showed up. A flying red-haired business lady melted the wall of Lilith's apartment, attacked Starfire and Zack Wingman, grabbed Lilith, and yoinked her through a lava portal that she formed in the sky. The pyromaniacal party crasher whisked her abductee off to the top of Mount Olympus, where she casually kicked the asses of the entire Greek pantheon of gods while providing the exposition that she was Fuckface's missing spouse, Thea, that she was Lilith's mom, and that for the past 80 years she had been plotting her revenge on Olympus, running the world's third most successful publishing company, and giving birth to a vast array of demigods who, with the exception of Lilith, all occupied positions of power around the globe. What a busy lady! While Lilith was having this not-so-quality time with her mom, Zack Wingman and the Teen Titans planned a rescue attempt. Wonder Girl recognized Thea from Fuckface's description, so the gang headed to Donna's girlhood home on Paradise Island, so that they could attempt to open the gates of Tartarus to question the OG Titans and see if they knew the whereabouts of their missing chum. When they got there, they were alarmed to find that the island was in ruins and Donna's mom and the other Amazons were missing. Oh no! Donna looked at a magic statue which sent her and the rest of the team to an enchanted space island oracle, which in turn beamed them all to the depths of Tartarus. Tartarus wasn't looking so hot, and neither were the titans who lived there. The place was under attack by an army of giants and monsters that Thea had sent to destroy her siblings. The new teen titans leapt into the fray to aid their ancient Greek counterparts, and the tide of battle quickly turned. Hooray! The collective titans declared their intention to storm Mount Olympus, rescue the Greek pantheon, and get revenge on Thea for the death and destruction she had caused. But, before they can make good on this oath, an enormous robed figure with a huge book chained to his wrist appeared in the sky and said, I am Destiny with a capital D. You guys should leave Thea alone and let her do whatever she wants, or the whole world is doomed. Gadzooks! Will we finally learn the nature of Zack and Lilith's connection? Why did Thea and her forces destroy so much of Paradise Island? And has his time in Tartarus made Fuckface any less of a fuckface? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so... Nope. And it looks like maybe we never will. They didn't. Apparently that was the work of a completely unrelated ancient Greek mythological jerk hole. And... No, it sure hasn't. Destiny repeats himself and is basically like, Look, if you fight Thea, the world is going to blow up or something. But do whatever you want. I'm not allowed to interfere. Except for sometimes. Like I just did by telling you that. Anyway, bye! Bye, Destiny. Cronus, the leader of the OG Titans, not the bass player slash vocalist of the 80s metal band Venom, turns to Nemocene, the Titan of Memory, and is like, How about it? You know lots of stuff. Got anything about this Destiny guy? Is he full of shit or what? Nemocene replies, Look, Cronus, not now, okay? Theus forces just killed my boyfriend, Creus, and I'm pretty torn up about it. I just don't feel up to doing that thing where a bunch of images play over my bare torso like animated tattoos. Cronus is like, Yeah, well, too bad, just do it. So Nemesine takes her top off and a bunch of pictures of a robed guy carrying a book show up on her body. After a few minutes, she's like, Nope, sorry, I got nothing. This guy is too old for me to have any skin movies about. Beast Boy pipes up and says, Wait, I thought nothing was older than God's. Themis, the goddess of justice, looks at him like he's an idiot. Which, to be fair, he is. She says, 
Well, you thought wrong. Lots of stuff is older than gods. You see, humans created gods by believing in us, which is why we exist and we're able to create humans. It's a whole thing. But Destiny's older than all that shit. Now, let's ignore him and go kick Thea's ass, because fuck her. At this point, Fuckface is like, No way! My wife slash sister would never do that! She's great! Just like me! I mean, sure, whenever she's gone for more than ten minutes, I sneak out to kidnap and hypnotize teenage girls, but that doesn't mean I don't love her. Everybody goes, Shut up, Fuckface! You're a Fuckface. So Fuckface shuts up. Hooray! Up on Mount Olympus, Lilith asks her mom what gives. Why is she murdering all her siblings and nieces and nephews? Thea tells her the reason she's doing this is because humans suck, and she should be running the world instead of them. Her nephew Zeus has been way too chill and hands-off with mortals for her taste, so she decided to take his throne. Huh. Look, Thea, I'm not going to say you don't have a point about humans making a real mess of things down here. But if your take on the Greek mythology that you're a part of is that Zeus is too laid back, then you must have read some different Edith Hamilton books than I did. I mean... The only time the dude was hands-off was when he was using a different body part on them, if you get my drift. I mean his dick. You know, because he fucked a lot of mortals. Like, a lot. Lilith thinks her mom is being a jerk and tells her so. Thea starts to chide Lilith for her insolence, but gets distracted because she senses that the Amazons she kidnapped for some reason are being freed from the crystal fortress where Cole has been imprisoning them. Wait, the what where who had been whatting them? Okay, so it turns out that during her time on Earth, Thea found a teenager named Cole who could make shit out of crystals. Thea told Cole to make a prison out of crystals to keep the Amazons in, and that if the Amazons escaped, she'd like murder Cole to death or turn her into a newt or something. You know, between that and the dudes that she's been burninating at the publishing house... I'm starting to suspect that Thea might not be the best boss. Although it might be hard to prove that, because people who have been burninated to death in newts don't give the most articulate exit interviews. As Thea and Lilith are working out their mother-daughter shit, the Titans, new and old alike, begin their assault on Mount Olympus. Most of the group concentrates on fighting an assortment of demons and giants that Thea has summoned to defend her newly seized throne. A big green insect dinosaur thing is about to chomp Nightwing, but Jericho swipes the body of a pink lizard monster and uses it to save his acrobatic ally. While their teammates tussle below, Donna, Starfire, Fuckface, and Zack Wingman fly up ahead to the Crystal Fortress to rescue Donna's mom and her Amazon buddies. As they approach the sparkling citadel, a red-haired teenager wearing an outfit that looks like a flying fish carved out of a disco ball attacks them. I'm gonna guess that this is Cole. Cole quickly encases Donna in Crystal. This pisses off Starfire or starts whooping the shit out of Cole and threatening to kill her. During the course of this ass-beating, the rest of the group catches up to the advance party. Dixie's Coriander wailing on her opponent and is like, Stop it! You could kill her! Coriander goes, Uh, yeah, that's kind of the point. Cole takes advantage of Starfire's momentary distraction and starts to encase the enraged space princess in a crystalline cocoon, but, at the last minute, Starfire shatters the crystal with a magic space fire punch. Hooray! Defeated, Cole starts crying, speculating as to what punishment Thea will inflict on her. 
While a weeping Cole considers her fate, Cyborg uses a sonic blast to free Donna from her encasement. Once free, Donna smashes the crud out of Cole's fortress and frees Hippolyta and her other Paradise Island pals. Hippolyta is like, Thanks for the rescue. By the way, Thea kidnapped us, but some other god wrecked the island in an unrelated beef. Just thought you should know. Okay, fair enough. The newly liberated Amazons are pretty keen to beat up Thea, and Cole figures that if she doesn't want to get murdered by either side, her best bet is to help the Titans and their buddies defeat her old boss. From atop Mount Olympus, Thea watches this shit go down through some kind of a portal. She's not too stoked about it. Lilith tries to tell her that her plan of world domination was a crappy one anyway, and she'd probably just be better off giving up now before anyone else gets hurt. For a second, it looks like Thea is persuaded by her daughter's impassioned plea. But then she's like, Wait a minute! I just remembered! I've got a giant dragon with a hundred heads that owes me a favor! Hey, Typhon, go murder all these titans for me! Typhon the hundred-headed dragon shows up and starts doing his best to kill the assorted titans and amazons. But even his considerable might is not enough for the combined forces of the seemingly thousands of gods and heroes now battling Thea. By this point, even Fuckface is now convinced that Thea is a bad guy. In true Fuckface fashion, though, he still figures out a way to make it all about him. Shouting that her murdering so many of their siblings and allies might tarnish his reputation in the Greek pantheon, Fuckface tackles his wife-slash-sister. As the two megalomaniacal assholes wrestle one another, both combatants become engulfed by flames. Their struggle ends in mutually assured destruction by self-immolation. Both Fuckface and Thea are dead. Hooray! Cole concludes the battle with Typhon by encasing the dragon and all hundred of his heads in a sheath of crystal. Hooray! The gods of Olympus, the Amazons, and both sets of Titans celebrate their victory and mourn their dead. Zeus tells the OG Titans that they're welcome to stay on Olympus and live there as long as they want. He also tells Lilith that for some reason, she now has to live there as well. Wait, she does? Why? Um, just because. Okay? Lilith takes the news about her new residence pretty well. She's going to miss her pals, but ever since she got to Olympus, it just kind of felt like home to her, so she's cool with it. Zack Wingman, on the other hand, is somewhat less stoic about the matter, and goes through a series of dramatic poses to illustrate his distress. Poor fella. Out in space or wherever, destiny reflects on what just happened and directs our attention to Washington, D.C. One of Thea's children, Carl Vesper, is a presidential aide. He has just sensed that his mom biffed it. After a meeting with President Reagan, he places a call to one of his siblings and says, Well, looks like mom's dead. You want to take over the world? Yeah, me too. Let's do it. The end. You know what? Despite his intention to conquer and subjugate the planet, I still bet Carl Vesper is only like the fourth or fifth worst person in that White House. I'd take him over Casper Weinberger any day. And joining us once again is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how are you doing? I am doing well. How are you? I am also doing well. Glad to hear it. Likewise. Yeah. I got back from uh, Ashland, Oregon, where I was accompanying Lisa on a business trip. Business? She was doing business. I was doing little. (laughs) Which was nice. I helped drive. That almost means you met your childhood goal. 
Oh, to be a do-nothing. Yeah. I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah. Doolittle is pretty close. <laughs> close, but no. Dude, we should just stop recording right now. <laughs> You're doing it wrong. Apparently. Corey's referring to the fact that we found an old worksheet a while ago that I'd filled out, I think, in first grade, and it asked, your goal when you grew up, and mine was to be a do-nothing. <laughs> Gotta say, sounds pretty great. Maybe one day. Sounds cool, but what does the job pay? Unfortunately, not nearly enough. Mm. You want to talk about a comic book? Oh, sure. Corey, what do you think of this comic book? Man, oh man, this artwork, I know I, I feel like a broken record, but holy mackerel, there is so much going on, and it is so well rendered. It's it incredible. is beautiful. It is beautifully drawn, beautifully done across the board, and really imaginative layouts, and just some gorgeous, wonderful artwork in this. I cannot say enough nice things about Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, but I'm gonna try. Okay, just as an example, the last page, which amazing as beautiful as this is it does not even begin to crack my like top three pages but the whole thing is set up where it is destiny holding a nine panel grid of action happening with uh one of thea's kids talking to the president and shit but it's so cool looking and it's such a neat idea to design the thing that way and there's just so much going on i don't know if this is specific to him as an artist but there is a lot of times where he'll have a page or even a full two-page spread then with littler panels on the top or on the side mm -hmm. and it allows you to get this like i want to say he's showboating but like he's got this enormous talent so he's just like i'm gonna fill two pages with all this badass stuff and then also keep telling the story by putting all these other little panels around and somehow it's not distracting it's no it's really good and it's a good thing that he is good at that because this is an issue that has a ton of dialogue that is really exposition heavy, but because of how good the art is, it never really gets bogged down in it. If you look at it, the issue on the story that's being told on like a granular level, a lot of it doesn't hold together, but when you're reading it, it's just like, oh, this is great. I'm immersed and I love this. Mm -hmm. There's a really famous in like comic book artist circles sequence that's done by Wally Wood called, uh, 22 panels that always work. Have mm. you heard about that? I have not. The full title of it, it's a little piece that he did that is uh, Wally Wood's 22 panels that always work or some interesting ways to get some variety into those boring panels where some dumb writer has given you pages and pages of dialogue. Oh, wow. Wally Wood was an amazing artist and so you see he has all these different ideas of ways to address that and... It's amazing when you look at that to just seeing how influential he was and how many of those panels continually crop up. It was a thing that he did, I think, in the early 70s. And so it had a lot of things like show an exterior shot of the vehicle that people are sitting in, uh, do a close-up of a silhouette of one speaker's face and the other character in the far background. What he doesn't touch in, and maybe is the 23rd panel that always works, is draw an incredibly convoluted scene of gorgeous, like, Hieronymus Bosch-style intricate hellscape in the background just while one character is doing exposition at another. And that's what we get really early on in this book. It's just amazing. Like you said, I don't want to get too redundant, but man, that Jose Luis Garcia Lopez makes some pretty, pretty pictures. Mm -hmm. And uh, Romeo Tengal, no slouch on inks there either. Yeah, what a team. Indeed. 
I had mentioned that some of the story doesn't really hold together for me once you take a closer look at it. And I think that is kind of the case for me on not just, I'd said on a granular level, but I think even stepping back from it in terms of like big story stuff, the inclusion of Destiny didn't really make a ton of sense for me here. He shows up at the beginning of the issue and at the end of the last issue, he was like, hey, if you guys fight Thea, the whole world will be destroyed. They fight Thea. They stop Thea. The world isn't destroyed. I think that's why he's there, though, is to to bring some risk to taking that decision. And I feel like the way that that destruction of the world is going to play out is foreshadowed in the last page okay. of this comic. Maybe. I wasn't sure if it was getting to that. To, to me, it really just seemed like, yeah, if we introduce this, this will raise the stakes for this battle some. Because obviously they'll all want to fight Thea, but what if we introduce a character and make it seem like maybe they shouldn't? It's never addressed why they shouldn't or what's going to happen. He interferes to the degree that he tells them that they shouldn't, but not to the degree that he informs them of why. That seems pretty arbitrary. I'm just not crazy about the idea of Destiny in general, not just as a character, but as like a premonition being a added flavor in a storyline. Uh, it just never quite works for me. It's either oh, okay, then this is all set, so it kind of removes stakes to an extent because whatever's going to happen is going to happen anyway, so it's just an illusion that characters are making any decisions. Or, if what they do can affect the outcome, then it's not really that much of a prophecy to begin with, you know? It's like, you know how at the end of Die Hard, the bad guy is trying to escape in an ambulance that was hidden in the big truck that they drove into the building in? Yeah. But at the beginning of the movie, when all the bad guys got out of the truck, there's no fucking ambulance in the back of the truck. But the movie's mm. so fucking awesome, by the time it gets to the end, you don't sit there and go, Hey, wait a minute, where'd that ambulance come from? Yeah, that's maybe, a, maybe he's doing the same thing. That's a good, Are you saying that Jose Luis Garcia Lopez was maybe the cinematographer on Die Hard? Well, you know, anything's possible. I think I was just so distracted by the fact that the movie opens with Christmas in Hollis. Um... <laughs> That I'm like, whatever, I'm in. <laughs> All in. Um, Next. <laughs> what were we, What was... Uh, just aspects of the sto story that didn't really work ah, for me. Right. There was also a lot of vacillation with characters. Like, Thea seemed to go kind of back and forth a little bit in this issue as to how into her plan she was and how she was going to react to it being foiled in a way that didn't totally work for me. I thought she was pretty consistent. I mean... Towards the end, where Lilith was like, oh, it's totally bad. Yeah, she does that weird thing where she gets all weepy and is like, woe is me. You're right. This was a silly plan to begin with. But here comes a hundred-headed dragon, and now I'm back in on all the evil. Yeah, so she really only had one little moment of like, oh. I don't know. Remorse. Never yeah. mind. Okay. I felt the same way about Cole, who is introduced in this issue, and we'll definitely talk more about her later. But... I think that may have been like a miscue between the art and the words because she appears to be pretty into and pretty gleeful about fighting the Teen Titans. But her whole arc is, I can't oppose Thea because she'll destroy me. And then Starfire unfreezes Donna from being stuck in Crystal. And she's like, okay, I can, I can oppose Thea. Let's go beat up Thea. Yeah, I don't know. It, it could be... The uh, drugs were wearing off. Like, when she's first introduced, I was like, whoa, that is one coked-up demigod. She's got these Are little... you just getting that from, like, her disco outfit? That and the close-up of her face where she's got these pinprick of pupils and this crazy look. Okay. Like, 
that is a cocaine fueled crystal making frenzy <laughs> is what's going on oh there. and the crystal too mm. so okay yeah I, I guess i can see that i don't know we see that at this point wolfman is his own editor and he is the sole editor on this book and i think that is something that can work for some creators i don't think it works as well for him i think i've seen it described that there are authors who are more architects who plan out every detail and then there are authors who are more gardeners who grow some things and then try to tend to them a little bit but kind of just like let the story take whatever direction it does and don't really necessarily know how it's going to end when they start it and i think wolfman falls into the second category of that which is fine, but I think that is a situation in which having a good, strong editorial voice that is maybe not your own would be really useful. I agree, because that's been one of our critiques in the past, right? Where we'll think there's part of a story arc happening, and then there's sort of, oh, never mind. And I feel like that's what we get with uh, Zach Wingman in this story. I don't think we're going to get any resolution to what the connection between him and Lilith was supposed to be, or even what his fucking name is, which we still don't know. And here's the other thing. Is it part of the mythology that if, if you go hang out in Olympus as a mortal, you can't leave? I don't think so. so I mean, Zeus, that's like Hades. That, if like Zeus just made that up. He's like, oh, and also one of you has to stay. Yeah. Thanks for freeing me. Like, what? I think that's something that we're supposed to believe is folded into the idea of destiny that is coming up in this. And Lilith says something along the lines of like, oh, as soon as I saw it, I knew it was my destiny to stay here forever. I don't think that's a thing. The other thing about that that doesn't hold together is, okay, one of you has to stay here. I think he's supposed to be saying that one of you and it's Lilith has to stay here. I just didn't specify for no particular reason. Mm-hmm. Maybe just so that we can get that one shot where it's all of the Titans looking at him annoyed as hell. Which is really fun. It's like, we just rescued your ass, man. What? So annoyed. Especially but... Nightwing. <laughs> like... Beast Boy, too, looks yeah. like, just like, seriously? We just fought a many-headed dragon for you. Look, we're all Titans here of various eras. Yeah, they're all mad. Even. They're all mad except for Jericho, who's just like... What's happening? I was just inside of a pink lizard (laughs) thing, man. It was weird. It was far out. Yeah, that's their their generally reaction. Everyone is annoyed except for Jericho, who thinks that. Mm -hmm. But once it is revealed that it is Lilith, in fact, who not only has to stay, but wants to stay, or is at least resigned to staying, Zeus had previously said, the rest of you can leave at your leisure, and Zach Wingman's like, what? No, I can't be apart from you, and now I've got to leave right away? It's like, no, man. A, this is at your leisure, and two, it is at the leisure of someone who has just described a rental agreement as being for the remainder of eternity. Like, you can stick around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're, you don't have to They've be got separated. like 30 more people moving in right then. You could just be one of the crowd. You'll look like you fit in there. Mm-hmm. But I guess he's just in a rush to get back to his fucking Ewok village in Pendleton. I don't get it. It doesn't make sense. And so those are some of the story problems that I have. But even on a, like, copy editing level, there were a couple of phrases that just didn't make sense that I think were not what he intended to say. And if there was just another set of eyes on that just being like, hey, it sounds like you're saying this. Is that what you mean to say? I think that this comic really would have benefited from that. Mm -hmm. The examples that I had for that are, there's a really minor one on page eight where talking about destiny 
basically reading about what's happening in his book. And it says, he reads of Oceanus's grief as mate Tethys dies. I think that needs a his in there. That could be old-timiness talk done not quite right. Mm. But I think that that would have benefited from that. As I said, that's a pretty minor one. The other ones, there's something that Hippolyta says. I think it's Hippolyta. It's a little bit unclear who's talking. But that's on page 22. And there is just part of a thought left dangling that drove me crazy when I was reading it. Long will be spoken of the night when Titan and mortal fought hand in hand, not just to save the most precious of gifts, I the freedom of choice. Okay, so not just that, but then it doesn't go on to say what else is saved there. Did they save the freedom of choice? That's the precious gift? I guess? But not just that, also something else which is not referenced. There's... Dan, you are more thorough than I am because I read that too and I was just like, oh, that doesn't make any sense. Maybe I'll come back to it later. <laughs> like, I, I think that's reading. honestly the right way to read it. It just, when I saw the colon and I was like, oh, it'll list the things that they saved. And I'm kind of curious as to what they are. And then it just didn't. That really bugged me. And there's also something that Lilith says that I was tempted to just include in my zingers. But it just doesn't come across the way I think it's intended. She's talking to Zach Wingman, and she says, Although my heart aches to part with you, I have no choice. That makes it sound like she is super into parting with him. Yeah. I think she means like, although it pains me to part with you, I have no choice. But when you say my heart aches to do something, that means you're super duper into it. So is she just being like, man, I'm really, really into parting with you. Maybe that's why he's freaking out so bad. Look at it, because he's, even before they confirm it's Lilith who's staying, mm -hmm. or before she confirms, he's just like, no! And he's crying, and he's super upset. I think we need a new category for the new Teen Titans thing. Mm. We've got a lot more for the Defenders than we do for the Teen Titans right now, and especially if this creative team continues, we are not seeing the same level of sound effects that we are used to seeing. No. So I'm thinking... We should maybe choose a character in the book that is being the most overly dramatic. Ooh, I like it. Theater. theater a theater kid. Theater kid category. Yeah. All right. So each issue will choose a th who's the most uh, theater kid. Okay. And I think this issue, man, there's there's a few to choose from. I think it does probably it's end up be being Wing Zach Wingman. It's got to be Wingman. Uh, although Hyperion also makes a pretty good case for himself. Fuckface, always in the mix in that category. I was pleased to see him have such a bad time. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> always happy to see Fuckface die, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> I was kind of surprised that the stakes are such as they are, even for the gods of Olympus and, like, the Titans and stuff. I thought there would be, like, maybe some kind of resurrection thing, but now nah, the gods and Titans that die are just straight up dead. As far as we know, it could be the case that he and Thea pop up out of some pocket dimension later, or who that's, knows what. That's fair, especially as as these issues are being published, we are quickly approaching the Crisis on Infinite Earths, which kind of rewrites the backdrop of the DC universe. Because so. also they just say, oh, they've disappeared. They foreshadow it, right, where she's like, let go of me, but we're, we're gonna die, or something. Yeah. And then... Somebody's I thought like, they were just oh, all burned it up. Totally burninated. Well, maybe. I thought she was burn-proof. Yeah, I Fire guess proof. maybe if they burninate each other, no one can burninate them but each other. Man, talk about fireworks. Corey. 
I'm gonna put it. I'll I'll put in Nebdrum. I don't. No, you you get the uh, there. Fuckface is still such a fuckface. Irredeemable. Yes, and thank goodness. I feel bad for Donna that she feels bad. But I don't begrudge her because she can't help it. Yeah, your feelings are your feelings. You go ahead and feel them. But she shouldn't have been made to feel that way in the first place. No, dick move on fuckface's part. And that is just absolutely confirmed that that is his character throughout this book. Most of the time... By Thea, who's a, who's a real shitbird, too. Oh, yeah. By Thea, by his own actions when he is just being like, No, Thea would never do this. You guys are all wrong. This is not Thea's doing. And then he is finally confronted with the fact that, yeah, no, Thea is totally doing this shit. And his reaction when he finally confronts her, he is super pissed off. And he is just like, You killed our siblings? You're destroying the world? Did you even think how this makes me look? This is a reflection on me. I groaned and shook my head. Yeah. When I read that. I did too. And then I was so happy that they just like hugged and burninated each other to death. Mm-hmm. Good. Yep. So what are your thoughts other than the fact that she seems to be kind of zooted up on coke of the character Cole who was introduced in this? Cool power. Although it has, again, that risk that so many powers do of being either pretty trivial or being able to do anything you want it to and fix everything. It's very much an all or nothing power, which is kind of a problem, I feel like. It's interesting and I like her, but it is one of those where it's just like, oh, well, if she uses it effectively, then nothing can stand in her way. And if she doesn't, then what's the point of her having this power? And so I feel like we're going to have, like, another, like, Raven on board where she's going to have to either, like, wait in the car or there'll be some reason why her power doesn't work against these people. I was also annoyed just from a technical, I guess, standpoint where Donna's encased in crystal. Uh Encased. Fully. Right. And then somebody's like, oh, she's still breathing. Yeah. Like, how does that work? How can you tell? What is it, fogging up inside the crystal? She's not even just still breathing, but also, like, her body moves from the instant that she is, like, shaped into the crystal because you see that she's been being carried by, I think, Zach Wingman at that point. It might be Starfire. I don't really remember. But she's being carried, and she's in the, like, being carried pose Mm -hmm. instead of the, oh, I'm surprised to be being shot with crystal powers pose that she was initially frozen in. Inconsistent. Yeah. Also, I get that crystals are very important and can do lots of stuff, but what's her deal? Like, is she, like, were her parents, like, super hippies? Is this a situation where... I showed you the the screenshot of that book that Lisa's mom I've gave her. I've seen the book. Yeah, where um, <laughs> it lists ways that you can make your car more fuel efficient by pointing a crystal at the fuel line. So I had a thing happen the other day. Where somebody that's a really close friend of mine, but who's who's into that stuff, mm-hmm. got this gift that's, you know those water bottles that have infusers in them, so you can put fruit or tea or something in there to make the water taste that way? No, but I get the idea. Okay, so this is one of those, but the infuser is designed to hold crystals of various sorts, so that the water is then infused. With energy? Mm-hmm. She received it as a gift from somebody, but was very earnest about it. Was she happy? She was happy to get it as a gift. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I... I don't think my... I think I said, oh, that's nice. 
Yeah. And no. then I, 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 I turned around. <laughs> I would have had to have turned around too, because yeah, I don't have the poker face that I sometimes think I do. That's true. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. <laughs> so I don't think her parents were actual hippies. I have not read that much about Cole, but I don't think it is that much of a spoiler to say that I think my favorite thing about her, other than her outfit, which I genuinely do enjoy, and we will talk about later, is her name. Do you know what her last name is? Kardashian? No. What? Weathers. Cole Weathers. Sounds like Carl Weathers. <laughs> Coincidence? I don't think so, but now in my mind I am going to be picturing her as being played by Carl Weathers. <laughs> and I really like that idea. Because any time the image of Carl Weathers can be summoned to appear in my head, I'm going to be pretty happy about that. Hmm. And if he is dressed like some kind of like a... I don't know, disco flapper manta ray, I'm going to be even happier. Do you remember there was a band in Portland briefly, I don't think they ever got that successful, that was called Carl Weathers for Governor? No. Their premise was, it was a very high concept band idea, or at least band name idea, was that at the time, Arnold, Arnold was governor of California, Jesse Ventura was governor of Minneapolis, or of Minnesota. Oh. And so their idea was that Carl Weathers should be governor of Alabama, and then it would make a triangle that could be used to summon the Predator. Wow. Yeah. I remember virtually nothing about their music. I think when I saw them play, one guy in the band had one of those cat-in-the-hat hats, and I was like, I'll be at the bar. Oh. But... Interesting idea, and good name. We saw a band play in Los Angeles where one of the band members had one of those hats. Yeah, we did. They weren't that good. It's weird. I remember the guy on stage, the singer with the hat, said, like, you know, was was trying to, like, hype his merch, and it's like, our CDs are in the back, they're good for, like, you know, if you're cleaning the house on the weekend, and blah, 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 and I was like, oh, that is the worst Man, way to sell your music that to somebody. Is, no, what a terrible sales pitch. Whereas, if you do want to clean your house, have we got the podcast for you. Yeah. So some of the Titans seem to have it pretty rough. I was thinking when Zeus said the line about you can stay with us on Olympus for the remainder of eternity. That's a weird way to phrase things, first of all. There's, like... That's just the same as saying forever. Yeah, I guess he's maybe precluding the past. <laughs> Which I don't think anybody would have assumed that he meant. You have to stay for eternity, starting at the beginning, but then you get into the whole logic problem. Exactly. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, maybe he's just trying to circumvent that by saying the remainder of eternity. Because you know Beast Boy's going to be like, wait a minute, wait a minute. (laughs) (laughs) Fucking Beast Boy. Chicken or the egg, man. But the idea of eternity did crystallize a few things for me. First of all, how much it has to suck for Cronus to see his kid... Taken over Olympus, which is fine. I mean, he's got to get some, like, Wally West dad giving up the uh, turkey slicing duties going on there. That's got to suck. I don't know. I mean, I think he's got that much time to figure out how to not worry about it. Yeah, I guess. You know, that kind of came up when Theo was talking to Zeus and calling him an old fart. Mm -hmm. And I was like, wait a minute, you're his aunt. What is going on here? Well, you, they were all 
mixed up back then. There are some very complicated familial relationships going on with the ancient Greeks, which is why them all moving into a house together on the summit of Mount Olympus at the end of this story seems like it is the makings for one wacky sitcom. Or, uh, yeah, like a reality show. Yeah, especially where you've got a lot of the Titans are newly single. Mm-hmm. There is going to be some wackiness going on there. That one time Dionysus showed up. Oh, my God. Oh, boy. Bring, brought all those mayonnaise with him. <laughs> Too hot for TV. Amen. But mostly the Titan that I think her combinations of powers and immortality must really make things suck for is Numison, the tightness of memory. Because mm-hmm. it is brought up that she just lost her mate, who she loved very much. Being the goddess of eternal memory, it's not like she can pull any of the, like, Donna grief counseling shit and just get over it. That's got to be eternally fresh for her. And her deal is forever. That's got to suck. Yeah, I mean, in fact, she does say right after Kronos is like, hey, sorry, I know it sucks, but remember all this shit for us? And she's like, dude, I would give up all my powers and my immortality and everything to just be able to forget what just happened. Yeah, but she can't, ever. Mm-hmm. I feel really bad for her. And also, you do see, once again, I t- we talked about it last issue, the confirmation of Donna's grief counseling tactics really are kind of a cultural Greek god thing. Where that is pretty much everybody's approach, because Cronus says that when he's talking to her, too. Yeah, 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 but uh, we got work to do, and come on, a lot of people are dead. Get over it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ouch. Harsh. Part of that same conversation where they made Nemesine, I don't know how to say her name, but they made her remember stuff. And then afterwards, Beast Boy's like, wait, wait, wait a minute. I thought you gods created everything. And Themis, the goddess of uh, justice. justice and everything, is basically like, nope. Humans actually are responsible for that because your belief in us is, is what made us gods. What made us gods, and I I thought that that was pretty interesting, and I don't know, yeah, sort no, of made me think about religion in general. <laughs> it's it's a neat idea, and it does create like kind of an Ouroboros thing where it's like, wait, but we created them with our belief to have created us. Whoa, dude. Oops the same way like that the stay up marshmallow man was reified in uh, the ghostbusters movie exactly and possibly all of them were put into the same position as ray stands from ghostbusters when they were asked by the humans worshiping them are you a god and they're like you say yes somebody asks you if you're a what god. are you gonna say yeah it all comes back to ghostbusters you're right thank you I did enjoy that touch. It's a premise that I feel like I've seen before, but I don't know if it was written before this or if it's like, I don't know. It's like when I read The Stranger, like when I read like Camus and stuff, I was like, yeah, no, I get it. I've seen a ton of stuff that had this as a building point. So I'm sure this must have been more revolutionary when it came out. But now that I've read other things that have built on it, it doesn't have the same impact. Mm -hmm. So... I feel like that's something that Neil Gaiman explored a lot in his work. But this did come out before that, so... Yeah, I think it's an interesting idea to play with. I can also imagine myself at, what would I have been, 11 or so when this came out? Reading that and just being like, whoa. Yeah. I mean, you can read it that way as like a very interesting thing to play with, or also as kind of a cop-out to 
avoid controversy from religious groups if you're like, well, no, she just said that they're not really gods. Unlike yours. I'm, I'm like the real one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, overall, I talked a lot about picking this comic apart, but as I read it, it did the job. And damn, it was just so fucking pretty. I do want to talk about quickly, I don't think it was probably in the reprint, but there was an insert in this issue that was by Andrew Helfer, uh, who's a writer who I like a lot. He did a reboot of The Shadow that I don't think gets enough attention back in the 80s, but he did a tribute to Ben Oda, who had passed away recently when this issue came out, and just talking about the contribution that he made to comic books and that letterers make to comic books in general. And it was really touching, and uh, Ben Oda sounds like an amazing guy, and I always appreciated his work as a letterer. And it made me sad to read about his passing, even though it was something that happened, what, like 30-odd years ago. Mm. But yeah, see, he, I guess he was a paratrooper and a spy in World War II um, as a Japanese-American, and Damn. like also just did a ton of lettering his workload the workload of letterers in general the amount of titles that they work on at a single time is amazing and it really did also drive home the point that it's not like it was easy for him so he did a lot of stuff he pushed himself and worked hard yeah so just a lot of appreciation for ben oda in this book which i appreciated seeing and uh, is a sentiment that i echo oda now, Corey, before we get into the minutia, I'm going to introduce a new segment, one that I'm very excited about. Yeah? We have our first sponsor! <laughs> money, 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 money. Now, Corey, how many hours a week would you say you spend out on the street with a stack of old romance comic books, just throwing them at people randomly, hoping that one of them will call their father and talk to them about it, and you can overhear them having an insightful, thoughtful, and entertaining conversation about that comic book. How many hours per week do I spend doing that? Yeah, in an average week. I don't know, 20? Yeah, I think that's probably about average. And... What would you say is the success rate of this tactic? How often do you have one of those conversations happen in front of you? Oh man, I keep hoping, but no dice. There's got to be a better way. A way that can help someone like me? I think there might be. Have you heard of podcasts? Podcasts? Aren't those just a scam for idiot jerks that want to sell me multivitamins? Until now, they always were. But there's a new podcast. A new podcast for people like you and me who want a simple way to hear fascinating, insightful conversations between a person and their father about romance comics. Wow! I know! Alex and David are a father-daughter team who have come together to riff on romance comics in their new show, My Comical Romance. And you can find that at mycomicalromance.buzzsprout.com. It's a monthly podcast, and they cover stories like Those We Care For, Dangerous Corner, and Give Me Back My Heart. They cover topics like feminism, hippie culture, and the dangerous disease-like nature of love. It is a super fun show. It's one that I've actually listened to a bunch now. 
There's only a few episodes of it out, so it's one that you can catch up on really easily. But I love this premise. I actually really do love old romance comics like that. And it reminds me of when we first started doing Teen Titan Wasteland. Part of the idea that appealed to me about that was that we would be taking a kind of critical look at these comic books that were written by middle-aged men marketed to preteens mm-hmm. about teenagers. And there's kind of a similar dynamic in a lot of the old romance comics. And yeah, listening to Alex and David talk about this, they're really fun and warm and engaging hosts who have thoughtful insights. And so if you haven't checked out my comical romance, then you totally should. It is a great show. Better than a box of multivitamins. Now, what would you expect to pay for a show like this? $10,000? Oh, I'd say $19,999.99. Corey, you're not even close. What? This show is absolutely free. Oh my goodness. And it's a really good show. You guys should all listen to it. So go check out My Comical Romance at mycomicalromance.buzzsprout.com. Now, Rick, would you mind singing us into the minutia? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part. It's just minutia. Like Corey eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. Corey. Yes. What was your favorite sound effect in this issue? I could only find the one. Yeah, there was a scree. Followed by a... Argh! Yeah. So I kind of had to include that, because... Because that's all there the is. screes are getting... I'm not say I won't say they're getting tired, but that seems to be the only one in the last few issues. Yeah. On the one hand, I appreciate it that the Titans do have their own kind of dedicated sound effect, like their own version of a snicked or a thwip. And there is something that is appealing to me about, like, character-specific sound effects. But at the same time, we've seen Scree a lot, so, you know, there's kind of a diminishing returns on choosing it as the best. Mm. But it's the only one in this book, and we only get the one of them. Um, I think this particular creative team just doesn't have a ton of sound effects, so that's why next issue of the New Teen Titans, we will debut the Theater Club Kid. Looking forward to it. Sartorially speaking, which elements of fashion did you feel were worthy of note? I think I gotta go with uh, page 11, Koki Cole Weathers. Yeah, I gotta say, I like this look. It's different than the rest of the Titans. Look at that face. Yeah, she does look pretty zooted up. I like the outfit, though. It, it is, it's like I said, it's a, uh, yeah, like a crystalline disco flapper manta ray. And uh, I especially like her boots. She's got some very nice, very 80s-looking boots. I feel like she probably has a lot of glitter on as well. Oh, yeah. They don't bother drawing it, but I think it's implied. But, yeah, I think that is a a nice look and an interesting look, and I'm looking forward to seeing more of Cole. Mm-hmm. Other looks we get in this, it seems as though Cole may have done, like, a crystalline redesign on some of the Amazonians' outfits, because they are now dressed in either all white or all silver or possibly all crystal. And it, it's an interesting look. I like the wing hat look, especially that Hippolyta is rocking. One Amazon does seem as though she is just wearing lingerie made out of crystals, uh, especially over her boobular region. To get technical. <laughs> it's odd and very distinct, and I'm not sure to what extent their outfits have been altered by their stay in Cole's Crystal Palace. 
but it's an interesting look. Indeed. Any other fashion worth noting? I have something that's going to come up in the um, the timestamp section. But, okay. Uh, but I, I think I'll save it for then. Well, you know what, Corey? Hmm. Let's do the timestamp. Were right. you able to find a timestamp in this issue? Not in the usual sense, hmm. but what I went with was on um, page 25, where introduced to one of Thea's many evil children. Carl Eve. Vesper. Well, I have a little theory here, too. So a lot of these people are the kind of behind-the-scenes movers and shakers, kingmakers, power brokers, bad guys. And so we have here a young Carl Rove, ne Vesper. Oh! But before we put on the weight... And lost yeah, the hair. Wearing... He has more of like a Haldeman look to him if we're looking at like White House staffers, but... Very 80s suit, though. There's distinct shoulder pads. Mm-hmm. Power under... tie. He's got a tie pin on, which is something you don't see a lot of these mm-hmm. days. Yeah, um, not a bad look. Black mm-hmm. suit, white shirt, red tie. Yeah. But uh, big shoulders. That was my timestamp. Very nice. I decided to go with one from the same page that's maybe a little bit more obvious. President Ronald Reagan. I think that the president that... Carl Vespers, perhaps Nay Rove is talking to, oh, yeah. is pretty clearly, especially from the haircut on the back of his hair, and the fact that he says that he's pleased as punch, I'm pretty sure that is supposed to be Ronald Reagan. Probably gave him a jelly bean in one of the other panels, off panel. Yeah, probably. Good, good job, son. <laughs> Have a jelly bean. Yep. I'm pleased as punch to see you do this. That was not a very good Ronald Reagan. <laughs> Gotta watch more of those terrifying spitting image. You did sound puppet like shows. the spitting image puppet. A little bit. I think that yeah. was maybe more what I was going for. Yeah, it has a more nasal voice than the actual Bonzo. Corey, let's take this party to the Bozo. What instance of one character calling another character a Bozo do you feel was most worthy of note? Thea really hit the nail on the proverbial head in referring to uh, Fuckface Hyperion as a strutting dolt. Always has been a strutting dolt. Mm -hmm. Still is. Man, that is a good one and accurate. So accurate. Yeah, no, I, I, I had the same note. That was definitely my favorite. There were a couple of perhaps unintentional zings that were also in here. I think we talked about the fact that Perhaps Lilith misstated when she said her heart ached to abandon Zack Wingman. Uh, I think that could be construed as a zinger. I think that Dick has an unintentional zinger. They're talking about destiny, and he says, In Greek myth, he was one of the very few gods not answerable to Zeus. He is sitting in the middle of the ancient titans. Zeus's dad is right next to him, who had a long power struggle with Zeus. That is, at the very least, a very insensitive thing to say right there. He's lucky he didn't get smote. He kind of is. I mean, Cronus has that weird sickle thing. Mm-hmm. Kind of just sliced himself up a dixicle. That doesn't sound good. <laughs> I mean, you know, he was using a sickle. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> Corey. Every issue of a Teen Titans comic has an Aqualad, the greatest of Teen Titans, and also a Beast Boy, the worst of Teen Titans. In this issue, who was your Beast Boy? So, I was tempted, as always, to go with actual Beast Boy for the Beast Boy, but he doesn't really do anything too terrible here. 
unless we choose to read his reaction to Nemesine uh, removing her top. That uh, was something that I did note, and that is why I chose Beast Boy it, as the worst Teen Titan. Not only does he look amused, alarmed, surprised, all of these things, but his he this, also kind of looks like he's doing the cunnilingus gesture. Yes. As Numacine <laughs> removes her clothes so that they can all watch history unfold in her tattoos, kind of like that one scene in Moana. I don't know if you've seen that. Oh, yeah, many yeah. times, yeah. Um, the Rock is great in that. He really is. But yeah, so she goes to pull that move, but as she, like takes off her robe. She's all, you're welcome. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> As she takes off her robe. I want a joke. Yeah, no, I got it. Okay. Beast Boy looks like, whoa. But he also does hold up his fingers in a V over his face, and it does look like he's doing the weird thing where you pantomime conolingus, mm-hmm. which is not a cool thing to do right then. Also, she is just talking about grieving for her, her dead mate. Yeah, I chose... <laughs> To read that charitably, like he was in the process of covering his mouth with, because he was just like he's maybe other than Starfire, the first other set of real boobies he'd seen, and so he was just like, oh my gosh! But yeah, they, they drew it like in slow motion, so he hadn't closed his hand to cover his mouth. Maybe I think even if you do give him the benefit of the doubt on that one, he also later on when they are fighting the hundred-headed dragon Typhon, you see that Beast Boy's tactic here is to wrap himself around one of the tusks and try to strangle that tusk as a snake. Oh, that's really dumb. Which is just dumb as shit. That is so stupid. <laughs> what a stupid idiot move from a stupid idiot. All of the rest of the Titans just, like, have at Typhon. Oh, shit. You know what? <laughs> so I had... I was going to look past the possible Conolingus thing. Sure. And uh, because Dick otherwise doesn't really do anything and he's generally insensitive and he does just kind of ineffective. Yeah. I was going to go with Dick, but I didn't (laughs) notice that Beast Boy was trying to strangle a tusk. Yeah. That may have actually tipped the scales for me. It it was pretty dumb. I had Dick as my backup. Mm. Yeah. His insensitivity to the other titans of old Greek mythology was one thing. He also seems to do a really inept version of bad cop when Starfire is threatening Cole to get her to do something. You don't call the bluff in front of the person. It was just like, this is this is more bad cop, inept cop. Mm-hmm. And it just wasn't working for me. So yeah, I definitely had him as a backup. And if we are choosing from all Titans and not just new Teen Titans, uh, of course, Fuckface is going to be in the mix. Mm. But I think overall, for pantomiming Cunnilingus at a grieving widow <laughs> and trying to strangle a tusk, I gotta go with Beast Boy. That's two for Beast Boy. <laughs> with Dick, a strong runner-up. Yes. Conversely, who did you have as your Aqualad? Who did the best job? Well, I don't know if I would say she did the best job overall, because maybe there were some flaws in her decision-making, as it was largely driven by passion. Mm -hmm. But I think for making things happen and moving the story along and being brave and just generally badass, uh, Wonder Girl Ah, got, uh, the, got the nod for me. For similar reasons, uh, following your logic along those lines throughout, I went with Starfire. 
for the exact same reasons that you chose Wonder Girl. Yeah, she was she was awesome. Yeah, also. they were they were kind of neck and neck. And also, if we count Cole, I mean, she was the person who pretty much single handedly like showed up at the end and was just like, "Oh, this hundred headed dragon, boop! Now he's made out of crystal. Done." I actually felt really bad for Typhon in this because yes, he's a giant scary monster, but he was somewhere minding his own business and then Theo's like okay go kill all these people and he's like okay that's my job i guess i'll yeah. do it you know it's not like he didn't come out and be like i'm so evil and then he starts getting really hurt and he's like ow this sucks like, get me out of here yeah and then they just keep beating him up it is also weird that like he is supposed to be this world beating menace that like this is thea's ace in the hole that all right now you guys are totally fucked i mean i beat you all pretty much single-handedly with some slight assist from my giant brothers. But uh, now, fuck you guys for reals. I'm bringing in this dude. Mm-hmm. And they bring in that dude. And for the most part, the new Teen Titans, who are all mortal, just kind of beat him up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, pretty much immediately he's like t- trying to retreat and he's in pain. <laughs> yeah. Just like, uh, my tusk I don't is want being this. strangled. It my tusk can't breathe at all. Stupid beast boy. <laughs> <sighs> yeah, I, I felt bad for him also. I did also, I was wondering, the the cover is absolutely gorgeous. It's by Eduardo Beretta. And yeah, it is just gorgeous. But on the cover, he's green. And on the interior, he's red. I don't think one looks necessarily better than the other. Just two very different looks. But man, both really, really nice pictures of this hundred-headed dragon. Mm-hmm. Good deal. Yeah, Christmas colors, scary either way. Mm-hmm complimentary colors if you mix them together you'd get a brown dragon yeah it does sound like i'm talking about a poop i wasn't (laughs) decision time what was your favorite panel no yeah this Uh, is a tough one yeah i narrowed it down to two okay the first one is on page 10 and it's the reveal of cole's crystal castle it's a nice crystal castle. Which I'm tempted to write with all Ks. Oh, don't do that. There is also page 17 and 18, and it's it's one of those two-page spreads with the other little panels uh, surrounding the action. And it's the fight with Typhon and everybody else. And there is just a ton going on. It is filled with action. It is a gorgeous scene, too. No, I I can't argue with that. I really wouldn't be able to argue with pretty much any choice in this. I think for me, my favorites are the scene where Numacine is doing her Moana deal. It is fucking amazing. It it is just such a beautiful image and so imaginative and so well-drawn where you see the images playing out across her skin. And you can still see her expression of grief in silhouette. Everything about that panel is just fucking gorgeous. It's another one of those, too, where, like you said, there's a ton of words on it, but it doesn't feel crowded, and it's, yeah. just, it's really artfully laid out. Yeah, it's that, that I, th- I think probably has to be my favorite. But the other one that I talked about where like there's just a ton of exposition being laid out on page five, while Thea is explaining her plan or parts of her plan to Lilith, And you just see in the background, it is like a Hieronymus Bosch painting, where there are just like all of these tortured gods chained to pillars. There are giants, there are snakes, there are teeming masses beneath them. There are weird lizards everywhere. 
there is just so much going on, and it all contributes to the story without having anything actually happen in it. It's just real, real nice. And yeah, there are some of the battle scenes. Man, it's it's just all so fucking good. I don't want to choose one. If I have to, which I do, I'm going with the Numa scene uh, being all Moanid up. But yep, damn. Yep, that was on my short list also. And I'm, I'm going to go with the castle reveal because it was just so fantastical. Yeah, and just such a subtly different tone than the rest of the grandeur. Like, you get the Olympian grandeur, but then... It is a totally different flavor when you see, like, the crystalline castle that Cole built. And I think everything had been hinting up to Cole being some kind of an Olympian, and she's not. Mm -hmm. It's a weird misdirect, and one that, like, because I was totally finding myself just being like, wait, Cole, I'm trying to remember my Greek mythology. Who the fuck was Cole? Mm -hmm. They made crystals in Greek mythology? Did they? I don't know. That's how they got their cars to run so efficiently. That makes a lot of sense. Mm. So fuel efficient. Mm Mm-hmm. You just you can either point the crystal at the fuel line, or if you can figure out a way to rest it on the fuel line as your car's running, it'll just uh, really take care of whatever gunk might be building up mm-hmm. in there. Probably just duct tape it, right? Yeah. Well, Corey, I have but one final question I must put to you. Sure. In the year of our Lord 1986, and the month of our Lord, August... What was Aqualad probably up to? Wapoot. Oh, boy. August did not start on a good note for Aqualad. It didn't. No. Hmm. He had a little routine in the morning. When you get up, Beaky, bring him a nice warm beverage, and kind of they just hang out and chat while he was slowly starting his day, and uh, Beaky didn't come. What? Yeah. Uh, So he got up and was looking around the house, and... Went out and found Beaky sprawled in one of the lawn chairs on the deck, looking pretty, pretty green around the gills. Oh no! Were. He was sick with the bird flu and bad. Oh no! Yeah, Beaky was in a bad way. Aqualad tried everything: Theraflu, vodka, you know, all the usual. Right. Fix him ups. Did he try crystals? He tried everything. He was really freaked out and worried. By this time, it was midday. Rushed Beaky to the hospital. Um, they went in the ER by this point. The poor bird was listless, um, not responding. And uh, you know how the ER can be, where it just feels like things are taking forever and things aren't happening. And Aqualad... They won't treat your pelican. They say, we only treat humans Yeah, here. and Aqualad lost his shit and grabbed... Um, it was probably like an EpiPen or something as the nurse was going by and just jammed it into Beaky, and it was indeed full of adrenaline, Oh! and it woke that bird up so bad, it lit him up. He took off like a shot down the hallway, and I was like, Beaky, wait, because the hospitals have glass everywhere. Oh, no. Yeah, and uh, fortunately, at the end of the hallway, in one of the fancier suites, a nurse was coming out and opened the door, revealing a wide panel of windows. And uh, and was like, no! And Beaky flies into that room, smacks into the window hard, falls down onto the patient who was in the room who happened to be a man in a coma who also happened to be Jerry Garcia of the Grateful Dead. Whoa! 
Uh, Beaky started flopping around and doing all this weird shit. Aqualad ran and was like, oh my god, Beaky, what's going on? The adrenaline kicked back in and Beaky just starts literally bouncing off the walls, knocking shit over. Nurses are coming in. It's absolute fucking pandemonium. Which wakes Jerry Garcia up. And he's oh. like, what's going on? I've been in a coma for a long time. Like it's months. nice that he was that self-aware about it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's all the psychedelics really mm. help. On the one hand, you'd think that he would maybe be a little bit more out of it. But on the other hand, there are only four fingers. Because <laughs> it's Jerry Garcia. <laughs> so, uh, Jerry's awoken from his coma August 1st, 1986. A year later... The Grateful Dead went on to release their multi-platinum record, In the Dark, which contained uh, the hit single, Touch of Grey, mm. which a lot of people think is about middle age and whatnot, but really, it's about Beaky, the gray little bird oh. that woke Jerry Garcia up out of his coma on August 1st, 1986. Thank you, Beaky. Thank you so much. Well, that was one thing that Aqualad was up to in August of 1986. You're right that it was a harrowing month for him. And so after all of that ordeal, he did decide to try to chill himself out a little. He went and saw a movie. That movie just riled him up even more. He went and saw Stand By Me. Oh. And from the opening credits, he just couldn't concentrate. See, Aqualad, I'm not sure if you remember this, but he was uh, found, he had been abandoned as an orphan and uh, kind of raised himself a little bit, ended up going back to Atlantis, but reared himself on the ocean floor. And he had chosen a name for himself, which was what he had believed was a perfectly reasonable uh, human name. He chose uh, Garth, which is not bad, but it wasn't his first choice. Hmm. The Atlanteans had told him that his initial choice for a name was just not a name that human beings had. So when he went and saw Stand By Me, and he saw that one of the stars of the film was named River, mm. he was like, what the fuck? They told me I couldn't be named that! Oh. Son of a... Mm. And he was just fuming. Mm. He couldn't pay attention to the movie. He just mm. couldn't concentrate on it. He sat through the whole thing. Right. I think he still probably uh, got a little chuckle at the whole uh, goofy Pluto thing in there. Mm -hmm. But other than that, he was just fuming. Mm -hmm. It's like, decided that the best thing for him to do would be to try to work out some aggression. So he contacted a friend of his, Jumpin' Jim Bronzel, who uh, was one half of a very popular tag team of wrestlers called the Killer Bees. Oh. They were a masked team of wrestlers. And Aqualad was like, look, Jumpin' Jim, I, I just need to work off some aggression. And uh, Jumpin' Jim was like, well, you know what? I'm, I'm actually feeling a little bit under the weather myself. Um, why don't you come up to, to Canada? We've got a tag team match against the Funk Brothers, Jimmy Jack and Haas Funk, and uh, they could take a lot of punishment. Maybe not as much as their uh, their brother Terry, but still, they, those guys can take a whoop. And I think you can, uh, you know, use your sea strength and limbs on them. They got a manager called Jimmy the Mouth of the South Heart. So, uh, tell you what, why don't you come up here? And so he did. Uh, it was a wrestling event called the Big Event. Very imaginative mm. name. But it broke, at the time, the indoor attendance record for wrestling in Canada at 76,000 people were in this crowd and watched the opening match, which featured B. Brian Blair and Aqualad posing as Jumpin' Jim Bronzel, the Killer Bees, defeating the Funk Brothers. Nice. And that is what Aqualad was probably up to. Nice I work. loved the Killer Bees. 
I can't picture what they look like, but it sounds like fun. They uh they had uh yellow and black striped underpants and masks, mm-hmm. and they they jumped around a lot. That Hence checks. the name Jumpin' Jim Bronzel. That checks out. But you know, Aqualad can jump pretty good too. He's got those sea strength and limbs. Sure. Yeah, between the combination of Jimmy the Mouth of the South Heart at ringside with his megaphone just yelling at him the whole time, and him still being pissed off that he wasn't named allowed to be named River. He got in some pretty good licks on those uh, Funk Brothers. Oh, man. I bet. Least funky people to bear the name Funk, I gotta believe. Mm, Hoss. Yeah, Hoss and Jimmy Jack. Not, I, I believe even Dory and Terry Funk were funkier than those Funks. That's my belief. I'm not gonna challenge you. Okay, You I look like you're that. itching for a <laughs> challenge, but... No, no. Nope. Well, thank you all so much for joining us. This has been a real treat. If you would like to get into touch with us, or if you would like to advertise your goods or services with us, uh, you can do so in a myriad of ways. One of them is via our P.O. Box at Tighten Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon, 97294. We can also be contacted electronically, as this is the future, at ttwasteland at gmail.com and we're all up in many other nooks and crannies of the internet your facebooks your twitters your uh instagrams your uh linkedin obviously i believe grinder um seacaptainsonly.com tweets tweets yeah tweets tweets ahoy um tumblr yep tumblr Stitcher? Yeah, Stitcher. Spotify? Sure, you can listen to us on Spotify. Are we on your end of the year Spotify, did you listen to this thing that people put pictures up of? Yes, the answer is yes. And so, thank you. And then put a picture of us up and say, I listened to this. Okay? Now, give me a picture of an omelet. And that's how the internet works. You can leave us a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or any place else. Your your Stitcher, your uh, your Overcast, your Podbean, your uh, Beanie Weenie, Podomatic, all the places. Just uh, however you're listening to this show, and presumably now also how you are listening to my comical romance. Uh, which you should be. It really is a great show. I really enjoyed listening to it, and I really think you would too. Why not leave them a review while you're at it? Yeah. So, yeah, leave them and us reviews in all of the places on the internet, and that will be your homework assignment. Thank you. Good. Yeah. For extra credit, you can donate to us monetarily at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. If you do, you get access to a bunch of bonus material. Uh, there are different reward tiers as well. Uh, for some of those, I make uh, little weekly videos, at least weekly. Uh, lately, I've been doing many more than one weekly, uh, where I do video reviews of classic comics. I've uh, been still concentrating on some licensed property tie-ins, which has been a lot of fun. Thank you, very much for donating if you do. It's a very nice way for you to let us know that you support what we're doing and would like us to keep doing it. So thanks for that, and thanks for listening. And in summation, don't pantomime cunnilingus at a grieving widow. If you do, 
You're a strutting dolt. Nope, that's the other guy. I think Beast Boy's a strutting dolt, too. Oof. Man, that is one tag team I would not care to see. No. Even as heels, they would be getting the wrong kind of heat. That's right. They would be getting go-away heat or X-Pac heat, I believe, as it is called. So, yeah. Stop pantomiming, cunnilingus, and grieving widows. Bye. <laughs>